it's another cherished opportunity that we have this Lord's Day afternoon to come together on an occasion like this one and to understand what a privilege indeed it is. So many around the world who, though they may desire to gather tonight, perhaps due to governmental interference or due to other circumstances beyond their control, at least are in grave danger in striving to meet, and yet we have the precious opportunity to do so in harmony and in peacefulness. And how lovely it is that God has allowed us in unity to so, to so dwell, Psalm 133, verses 1, 2, and 3. It is tonight as we come to the sixth installment in this series of lessons already on the various translations of the Bible. As we come to this sixth one tonight, may we begin by at least making record ever so briefly of some of those matters we've learned along the way. Because isn't it perhaps to be highlighted, we have at least in point made note of the powerful and marvelous truth that surrounds the revelation of the Word of God. The fact that it is the all-inspired, God-breathed Word that He has delivered to us. And in that character, the initial, the initial autographs were absolutely reliable. From them, however, the human family has strayed on a few occasions. And in fact, there are now Bibles of one's choice that one can purchase and make use of that study with a particular bent or with a particular slant. And in particular, we've noted several translations, not the least of which is the Good News Bible, the Cotton Patch Version, the Cotton Patch Bible. We learned both of them are such that they would not be reliable as a personal record of what one would wish to study and to make use of as the Word of God. The following week after that one, we noticed the Living Bible Paraphrase and the so-called New Living Translation that went with it. In addition, the New English Bible and the Revised English Bible, both of which had a methodology of translation that you and I would greatly question. It's often under the banner again of dynamic equivalence and not a word-for-word -word translation of the Word of God. The week following that, we looked at the Amplified Bible and found it amplified things all right. It inserted and so often spoke where God had not. And finally, that Revised Standard Version that also seemed to present no small number of difficulties and issues that you and I, as interested parties in the Word of God, would certainly question. Tonight, might we give some thought to both the NIV and the NASB as a part of our study time this evening. As we strive to look at each one of them, our goal again is merely to allow them, the translators if you please, to speak for themselves and to look at some passages to be found in these translations and to strive to understand somewhat more clearly the means as to how we would catalog these. Would we catalog them as reliable or would we call these into question like those in weeks past? As we do that, the NIV is up next or up first for us in consideration this evening. I don't think I'm outside the bounds of rightness to state that the, new the NIV, the New International Version, is perhaps the single most popular English translation of the Bible ever made. It is used in tremendous abundance. In fact, it's extremely and exceedingly popular. As you can see, it was set forth in the 1970s. And as you look at just a few of the initial statements in its preface, in that which occurs near the beginning of it, 
it really set forth the idea of being an international translation in the sense that hopefully garnering and gathering a large following worldwide as a presentation of, in fact, the initial scriptures of God. Certainly that's a noble desire and a noble goal. But now let's look at least a few issues and look somewhat interestingly at the way in which certain passages have been rendered. I would suggest we at least start by asking, what about the teaching as it appears relative to the subjects of divorce and remarriage? We are aware that our Savior spoke on those subjects on no small number of occasions. And I would ask you to read Matthew 5.32 as the NIV presents it. And I've written that there for you so that even if you do not have a particular NIV in front of you, this is what it says. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, the text of Matthew 5, verse 32. Among the statements to be observed in that passage, I would call your attention to one of the ways they rendered a very exceedingly special word in that verse. We understand that all, of course, of the words spoken by our Savior and used for us by inspiration are special and important. But you and I remember that Jesus, on that occasion, specifically used the word fornication. And yet here, our translators of the NIV have chosen to use the phrase marital unfaithfulness. I might submit to you that's a bit broader. In fact, one could argue it's significantly broader. After all, that would give one the impression that any unfaithfulness with regard to the marriage, whatever it may be, may thus become legal grounds, according to this rendition anyway, for in fact the means of a divorce. Thus, if in fact one's husband did not do his duty toward the marriage, if you please, of let's say providing for the children and the wife, Based on this, could in fact he thus be one whom that woman could divorce because he's been unfaithful to the marriage? When based on this rendition, one may so argue. But that is not what the Lord said. The Lord again used that word fornication, didn't He? Which had reference to illicit sexual activity, illicit sexual intercourse, if you will. And in that way, the term is really rather different. As if this one wasn't enough, let's at least note the consistency in the NIV, because in Matthew 19, 9, listen to how that verse is rendered. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. End of verse. Is noted earlier, we do see the usage of that phrase, marital unfaithfulness, and so, again, we would certainly call that into question that again is not a rendering that would do justice to the term our Savior employed. But I would ask that we note something else about this verse. A part of it seems to be missing. Jesus again affirmed, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. It is in this particular Certainty, we notice the NIV removed the complete last half, basically, of that verse. That latter part that has to do with the one, the woman who marries again, indeed is the one who commits adultery, that part was completely removed from Matthew 19.9, wasn't it? 
at least on those two occasions, we thus would have an issue, a problem with the NIV. But let's in fact look a little bit further. Very last statement on that particular slide. What is the NIV's rendition and its teaching concerning that which you and I know of as Hades? On this next slide, let's give some thought to Acts 2.31. A passage found in the heart of Peter's wonderful sermon on the day of Pentecost. And as Peter stood up with such boldness and yet such courage and spoke on that occasion, the NIV has him making this statement. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. We notice on that occasion, again, this is the NIV's rendering of that verse. I believe we each could see there seems to be a very troubling matter presented in that passage. Troubling, in fact, to any who are aware of the nature of the body, the soul, and the spirit. Because the NIV has garbled and confused them to the point that notice what they have happening. Speaking of the Christ, it makes reference to Christ following the nature of His death, actually His Spirit being abandoned to the grave. Now we each understand that such a thing is physically impossible. We understand the Spirit upon the occasion of death departs the body and returns to the God who gave it, according to Ecclesiastes 12, verses 6 and following. But we notice here specific reference is made to the grave. There are no spirits in the grave. That's where, of course, the body is housed and placed because the spirit has departed that body. As you can see in this, he was not abandoned to the grave. The Greek word there present is the word Hades. Why the NIV chose to render it this way is beyond me. And why they would have garbled that rather plain teaching of the character of what happens at the occasion of death, the character of the fact that the body is what goes to the grave, not the spirit, we can begin to see an issue of the problem that appears at least on this occasion with the NIV. Even beyond that, might we notice, what about a host of other passages wherein so often the word Hades appears? We know of, in fact, frequently in the New Testament, as well as on some occasions in the old. That particular word is, is certainly utilized. As you give some thought to how often then that confusion might prevail, it gives one a feeling that the translators didn't do the best justice in choosing their word to represent the word Hades. Even beyond that, consider this with me. The natural man, as he is presented in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, in the 14th verse of that chapter we find the following statement, the following rather interesting presentation as Paul spoke about the natural man, that one who of course stands rightly before God and stands opposed to the one who follows the pursuits of this world. Paul used the word natural as descriptive of that latter category. And we notice here the NIV says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You perhaps can begin to gain a flavor as to why there are some in our world today who thus would be quick to claim that you must have some separate and apart supernatural influence from the Holy Spirit in order to even be able to understand the Scriptures because that's what that verse says. 
And yet you and I appreciate that that's not what the original rendering said. In fact, it's somewhat amazing, and I've tried to bring it to our attention, that the word spirit actually only occurs once in that verse, and yet the NIV has it occurring twice. The first one, its first occurrence, is an absolute assertion into the text of what really was not there. Interesting then, as one notes, here was a time when something was asserted to have been stated by God when in fact it was not. That reminds us of the lesson text that Brother Greg read for us earlier. In 2 Thessalonians 2, in verses 1 and 2, what was the statement there that Paul made in warning to the Thessalonian brethren? The warning therein presented was this, Don't be shaken as by letter or epistle as though it were from us. Believe it or not, the church in Thessalonica had received a particular letter, an epistle, and it had been claimed that it was from Paul, but it wasn't. Paul warned them, don't you accept something as the Word of God just because some person has said that it is, or just because some individual or some group or otherwise has affirmed such to be the case. May we not say these translations fall in the same category? For on so many occasions they say the word Bible on the cover or on the front inside flap, and perhaps even throughout the preface there are these noble claims that in fact such is the case, when in fact so often we found issues and problems that certainly are worthy of some serious reflection. Whether it's the ones dealing so far as what we've looked at tonight, or the ones that are yet to come. Speaking of things yet to come, what about the plan of salvation? It would seem that there is nothing more basic, more fundamental than those matters to which a person must attend in order for him or her to stand justified and saved in the sight of God. And yet, what does the NIV do in occasions in which the plan of salvation is under discussion? May we turn to the 10th chapter of the Roman letter, and particularly it's verses 9 and 10 of that chapter that I would ask us to consider. The NIV rendering to that passage reads as follows, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. In fact, isn't it interesting that that sounds as if it rolls off the tongue so easily and yet so nicely. But I would point out rather quickly to each of us that notice what that says with me. That directly says that salvation takes place at the time of confession... And furthermore, it affirms that justification takes place at the time of belief. You'll notice the verb tenses and the prepositions used make those two assertions that I have just noted. Again, salvation occurs at the time of confession, and justification takes place at the time of belief. Now, might we take a moment to ask, is that a correct and in fact trustworthy rendition of what the text is that you and I are accustomed to hearing, and the one perhaps we've read from that passage on so many occasions. If you think about, say, the way a different translation reads it, that verse number 10, for instance, would perhaps read as follows, For with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, 
and with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. I would ask you to notice the preposition unto. In other words, you'll notice in those translations, it does not say that it happens at one and the same time, but it is a part of what is recognized as the final goal of justification or the final desire of salvation. There is a world of difference between the two, isn't there? Confession is a part of the plan of salvation. Nowhere in trueness to the Scriptures does it promise, of course, salvation at the time of confession. But confession is a part of that plan that emanates and culminates in baptism wherein one is justified from sin, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, as well as the understanding of salvation that goes along with that, Acts 2, verses 41 and following. And so we notice our individuals who have translated the NIV in a desire to appeal to a somewhat broader audience or in a desire for whatever goal that may have been in mind seems to have in fact left a serious misconception relative to the plan of salvation at least on this occasion. As you'll notice continuing on that slide, one might also at least quickly mention a direct contradiction that appears at least at one location in the NIV. If one looks in harmony at the passages found in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Ephesians 2, verse 15, and Hebrews 10, verse 9, one will find the following unusual things presented. First of all, in the NIV, Jesus made the absolute statement, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. As we come, though, to Paul's statement of Ephesians 2.15, there the inspired writer said that those were destroyed. And, of course, the Hebrew writer affirms the same. And so one might now, in fact, ask this question. So which was it? Did Jesus come to destroy it or didn't He? He said that He didn't, but yet Paul said that He did. Now, it can't be both ways. Either the Lord did destroy the law of Moses and the prophets or else He didn't. As you think about the way some other translations render that, for instance, using perhaps the word destroy or on other occasions the word annul, I've given for us some food for thought as we look at the Greek words used in those verses. And notice they're not the same. That's one of the most critical things for you and me to observe. Jesus, in fact, in Matthew 5 used the word kataluo, which means the following, to deprive of force to annul, to abrogate, or to discard. Whereas in Ephesians 2, as well as Hebrews 10, the word employed is the word katargio, which means to cause to cease. It in fact means to put an end to, to annul, abolish, or do away with. And when properly interpreted, in those places there's no contradiction. But you'll notice there certainly is left in one's mind the possibility of such by the way in which the NIV so rendered the same verbs in those various places. In any of those places and in any of these other considerations, it would seem to me fair to draw the conclusion at the bottom. Certainly it would seem wise to say that for a novice, a person who is a new convert to Christ, the NIV would not be a safe translation to use. Perhaps for one who is well-schooled, well-versed in the teaching of the truth, one would be able to spot some of these matters 
and perhaps one could use it for at the most a reference to compare with other translations, but certainly for someone who is relatively new or even maybe experienced but not mature, it would be very dangerous, it seems to me, to use the NIV as a study guide and as one upon which one will base the eternity and the entirety of his standing before God. It certainly seems to me safe to say there are far better translations in the NIV. Speaking of that, let's look at another one. Not to say it's any better than the NIV, but nonetheless it's different. It has its own set of issues and concerns. The NASB, the so-called New American Standard Bible, as you can notice some of those initial statements, it too was published by the Lockman Foundation, the same publishing company that put forth the Amplified Bible that we considered last Lord's Day evening. It seems ironic to me, in fact, that this particular Bible, the NASB, was published almost exactly a decade later than the Amplified Bible. Perhaps some initial notes are also worthy to appreciate as it came forth in the middle part of the 1960s. The first statement, I think, is perhaps the initial point that we should indelibly imprint in our minds. That NASB, the New American Standard Bible, certainly has a name or at least a description that seems exceedingly similar to the American Standard Version. Might I point out there is no kinship between them. It's not as if this is an improved or updated version of the other. It isn't. In fact, it isn't nearly as good a translation as the ASV. In fact, we'll look at that ASV a bit later in our, in our considerations in these lessons. But for now, please note, this bears no resemblance, no kinship at all, even distant, to that ASV of 1901. Some special things that might perhaps be interesting to observe about this new American Standard Bible. We might well start this way. It seems there'd be no finer place to start than the closing chapter of Ecclesiastes. I would submit that in that chapter are two verses that seem to stand so majestic and mighty as they set forth what the whole duty of man really is. We're often familiar with hearing them and reflecting upon it because Solomon there said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing according to that He hath done, whether good or evil. It is in light of that I would ask you to notice the NASB rendition of that verse. Now verse number 13 is the only one that I wrote. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. I would submit to you, and we each can easily appreciate it, that they have taken a critical part out of verse 13. The NASB has in fact removed a tremendous amount of the life-giving character of that verse. This is the whole duty of man. No doubt many a lesson has been built around the thought of, based on that text, the whole purpose for you and me being here, the entire motivation, Thrust, incentive, and mission of life is the service of God, the keeping of His commandments, the dutiful responsiveness to that which He has commanded. And yet that verse removes that thought completely. 
Again, it simply reads, the conclusion is, fear God and keep His commandments. No one would say that isn't important. But again, the text actually includes a phrase, this is the whole of man. And that is not to be found in that verse. They've changed it to this applies to every person, which is an entirely different statement, an entirely different idea behind it. May I submit? If that is any guide, this translation is definitely not going to be one to which we will feel so good about using. Why would they have changed that phrase to read like that? We've often noted that the particular prefaces and introductions will state that they have often lofty and noble desires, but frankly, why would one have the nerve to change a particular statement? And to make it read in such a way that the meaning is so different. That the passage, in fact, reads in such a different character and fashion, and yet that's what these NASB translators have done. Even beyond that, might we notice something about baptism? We understand how thorough the teaching of the New Testament is on the subject of baptism. Every one of the conversion accounts in the book of Acts make mention of the necessity as well as the fulfillment of the role of baptism. Peter so often taught of it in texts like 1 Peter 3.21. Our Savior taught it in Mark 16.16. Paul, of course, so often joined that refrain in both the Corinthian and Roman letters. But let's listen to how the NASB renders this particular passage. And it's Mark 1 verse 4, opening chapter of the gospel according to Mark that we might consider on this occasion. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, the only thing to which I would ask us to give some thought is their little use of that indefinite word, that indefinite adjective, a. If you, for instance, read in a different translation, it will say that John the Baptist preached the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness or for the remission of sins. As if there was this singular approach and this singular means by which one could appreciate the remission or forgiveness of sins. It involved baptism. Whereas to change it to A seems to imply there's a various number of approaches to which one could perhaps appreciate sin's forgiveness and this just happens to be one of them. Do you note the distinction and the difference? There's a great difference between the and a. In fact, isn't that something similar to what we've noted concerning the church in our Sunday morning studies? There are many who might give thought to a church, whereas the Scriptures teach there's the church, isn't there? There is but one unique body of Christ, and so too we might now ask the question, in terms of the forgiveness of sins for an alien sinner... What is the one and only way in which that can ever be accomplished? Isn't it through the avenue of baptism? It doesn't happen through prayer. It doesn't occur through confession. It doesn't occur through repentance. It doesn't occur through belief. Only through the avenue of baptism. And in fact, even John the Immerser shouted loudly and plainly the necessity of such. And yet our NASB translators seem to at least muddy that consideration by changing the to a. You can begin to get a feeling that perhaps that theology might have led to a number of other changes that had to do with the insistence and the absolute necessity of matters associated with that one.
as you can give thought with me to this, let's consider another. It would strongly seem that those who were behind, again, that Lockman Foundation, those who had charge of producing this NASB, it seems often had a desire to make use of their own theological bent and to, in fact, present in the Holy Scriptures, if you please, a teaching that either borders on or directly teaches the so-called matters of premillennialism. One passage that seems to, in fact, be in that particular category is this one. In Acts chapter 3, verse 21, on that occasion, as Peter again stood and preached so powerfully, this was in Solomon's porch. It was on the very next chapter after the church had begun in chapter 2. But here we find Peter in the NASB saying, "...whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time." The interesting choice that the translators made was the usage of that word period, which is singular, as opposed to perhaps other renderings that use the plural word times. And I would ask us to note there's a big difference between a word that's plural and a word that's singular. And there's a dramatic difference, especially in the way so often the word period is employed. In fact, what is one of those common teachings of the premillennial ideology? That there's this period of tribulation followed by this event known as the rapture and a period in which this thousand-year reign, as it's so often taught, in which supposedly there is the periodic consummation of all things. It would strongly seem that that was the idea that these translators had in mind as they directed and pointed the attention to the consummation of those things. But as we've noted, the Bible doesn't teach that there's ever going to be a thing called a rapture or that there's ever this seven-year period known as a tribulation or that there's this thousand-year reign of Jesus upon earth. In fact, the Bible in fact teaches that none of those things will happen. Whereas this NASB again seems to suggest, if not directly affirm, that such is supposedly to be the case. Another matter that is of great troublesome reflection, Luke chapter 24, verse 51. The closing chapter of the gospel according to Luke. We find on this occasion, Luke gives us a record, albeit a brief one, about the closing declarations of Jesus and His ascension into glory. That, however, from what I've just said, is what one would read in some other translation. Look at how the NASB renders this particular verse. Again, Luke 24, verse number 51. And it came about that time, or, uh, and it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. Now, I would point out that, in fact, other translations will use those two phrases and present them, but there is a third one that the NASB has chosen not to include. After saying he parted from them, it says, He, of course, ascended from them and appeared even unto heaven, or ascended unto heaven. One again has to wonder, why have the NASB translators chosen not to make mention of the ascension? Was that a troublesome point to them? Was it a matter of some controversy? There's no hint given, it's just that it doesn't appear. 
In light of these passages, it would seem that one again could at least make this statement. The NASB again would not fall in a category that one would declare as a reliable and as a trustworthy rendition of the Word of God, but rather it's one that often has misstated, given the wrong impression, changed various wordings, and used it to assert things that really are not the case at all based on the original autographs. Perhaps this NIV study tonight, as well as the NASB, has challenged us to begin to think more interestingly about what then are some reliable translations. What are some translations upon which one could state a note of confidence and one could feel a degree of assurance and reliability? We shortly are going to begin to look at a few of them, I might add. But at least this lesson has again been two that do not fall in the good category. Perhaps to conclude or summarize the lesson this evening, might we put it in language like this? Our study of these translations continues to be a valuable one because it challenges us to realize the nature of what a translation is. It is that effort and labor on the part of someone or committee to take what was the original Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek and put it forth in English in a way that is reliably consistent with, by word-for-word -word translation, that original inspired text. And so far, eight translations you and I have called into question and those descendants from them. We've also noted, adding to our list of those that are on our bad side, the NIV, the NASB as well. So you and I can be very cautious about encouraging others to study from these, to in fact lifting them so highly. And may we be quick to say that there have been those who have held rather high and respected positions in pulpits and other places through the last half century or so who have encouraged the NIV and the NASB in monumental ways. And many, of course, have chosen to follow that lead. As you and I are more cautious and careful than that, however, we have now come to appreciate again that warning of 2 Thessalonians 1, or 2, verses 1 and 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or troubled, neither by spirit or by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand." Someone had written to those Thessalonians and asserted Jesus is coming soon. Paul warned them, I didn't write that. No inspired man wrote that. And as we look upon these translations, may we never forget the same thought. These are the works of men, and men have often made mistakes, as you and I have learned so far in this series. But before us is going to become some different kinds of questions. Again, may I ask, how would we rank some other translations? I'm sure you've been wondering, where does the King James Version fit into this? What about the American Standard Version? The English Standard Version? What about the New King James Version? We will give each of them their due reflection and consideration in due course. But for tonight, as we close this lesson, might we close it in the following way. Where do you and I stand before the judgment bar of God relative to that which He has proclaimed? Not based on the faulty presentations of what men have said, but in terms of what the Lord said, or Paul, or Peter, or John, 
Where do you and I stand? Have you had your sins forgiven in the way that he described it could be done? The only way that he said it could be done? If you haven't attended to obedience to the gospel call of invitation, why not tonight? He did say, didn't he, in Mark 4, that you must hear what I've affirmed. In John 8, 24, you must believe that I'm the Son of God. He also stated in Luke 13, 3, you must repent of your sins. And he stated as well in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, the necessity of confession. And he also spoke about the need for baptism in Mark 16, 16. Have you taken care of that? If you have not, then let tonight be the night. If you need to respond to the gospel call of invitation, all are going to stand in a moment and sing and how joyful we as well as the angels would be over your admission into the kingdom as Christ adds you to it. If you have become a Christian at some former time and proudly wore that name, but now you've since lost sight of its meaning, you've lost touch with the Savior that it represents, why not come back to that first love tonight? If we could pray upon your behalf for forgiveness of sins known publicly, God has promised upon your belief to the fact of the nature of what He can do, your admission of those by way of repentance and confession, that He will forgive them. If we could pray tonight in that very matter, we'd be honored to do so. We would only ask that you would let us know in what way we can be of assistance while together we stand and while we sing.